conscience is one of the ways that God guides you, but your conscience is only reliable if it's been informed by God's word. When you deliberately choose to sin against what you know is right, you are corrupting your conscience. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. We're going to be opening 1 Timothy today for the next several weeks, Lord willing, next three months. Um, there are four major bones in any structure, in any organization, including the church. Every church has these four bones. There are the wish bones. They're the people that wish somebody else would do something about the problem. There are the jaw bones. They do all the talking and not much else. There are the knuckle bones. They knock everything and everybody all the time. And then there are the backbones. They're the ones who carry the load and do most of the work. The churches we're going to look at today, the church in Ephesus in 1 and 2 Timothy, and then later on the church in Crete in Titus, you're going to see had some of these four kinds of people. Now, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, these three letters are known as the pastoral epistles because they're written to two young men who were pastoring churches. Uh, Paul knew his work, his ministry on earth was coming to a close, and he was very, very concerned that the churches he had founded would continue to follow Jesus. And so these three letters really delineate or lay out how God's people should conduct themselves in the house of God as part of God's family. So they're guidebooks really on how you do church together. The churches that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus and Titus was pastoring in Crete had a lot of problems, uh, many much like the churches today. However, Jesus Christ had promised before he left what? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let me give a little context and Rob and Carolyn are driving back from uh, Idaho right now, so we don't have any visuals. So I'm going to try and verbally explain this to you. Paul took three missionary journeys in the course of his uh, ministry career that occurred between about 47 and 56 AD. He was arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey in AD 57, and he spent the next several years being processed through the Roman judicial system. If you think today's jury system is ponderous, Rome's system of justice was very ponderous. It took him about four years to get through the system. The book of Acts ends with Paul being held in house custody about AD 61 to 2. Although his friends were able to visit him, he was chained to a Roman guard and he was in custody. That's the book of Acts. He was released after the book of Acts ended in AD 62. And he visited the churches that he'd previously founded in northern Greece, places like Philippi, Thessaloniki, Berea, etc., etc. So he wrote the letter to Timothy after the events of Acts, about 63 AD, 64 AD is when he wrote that, the letter to Timothy. 
And later on, he had um, gone north to visit those churches after 63, 64 AD. Now, at 64 AD, there was a massive fire in Rome, burned most of the city. Uh, history would suggest that Nero, the emperor, may have had something to do with that. He had many, many building projects that he wanted to complete at that point in time. So that's the historical context. Nero blamed it on the Christians and began to persecute them and actually uh, kill large numbers of Christians at that point. So Paul's writing this letter to Timothy from Macedonia, which is northern Greece. So Paul and Timothy visit the church at Ephesus. Remember, Paul had spent three years there earlier. They visit the church. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus and says, this church has got some issues. You need to deal with it. He moved on to northern uh, Greece, which is called Macedonia. Later on, he and Timothy, or he and Titus, had visited the island of Greece where there was a church. He left Titus there and says, you have to set in order what remains here. This church has got some troubles as well. So Paul was taking his mentees, if you will, and, and dropping them off at churches to minister to meet needs at that point in time. And he wrote the letter to Titus probably around 63, 64 AD from Nicopolis in, in southern Greece. So Paul now, after he's released from prison from 62 to 66, is visiting various churches, writing letters, Timothy, Titus, etc., etc. Paul was arrested in 66 AD by Nero, tried and imprisoned in the Manertine prison. He's ultimately put on trial and beheaded 66 to 67 AD. Just before his, his martyrdom, he wrote 2 Timothy. So these three letters, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, are among the last things that Paul wrote. And 2 Timothy is very definitely the last thing that we have in the New Testament uh, that Paul wrote. So Paul had first met Timothy on his very first missionary journey into Galatia. Galatia is now modern-day Turkey. So you look at the Anatolian Peninsula, you go inland a little bit. That was the Roman province of Galatia. Paul had gone there first in about 46 AD, 46 AD, and he had met Timothy at the city of Lystra. And they were planting churches in Derby and Iconium uh, and um, uh, Lystra, and he, Paul had met Timothy. Timothy was about 20 years old when they first met. Scripture tells us that, Paul, that uh, Timothy's mother, Eunice, was a Jew, as was his grandmother, Lois. Timothy's dad was a Greek. He was a Gentile. We don't know anything about his faith, but we do know that Eunice and Lois, mom and grandmother, were devout Christians and had raised Timothy with the Jewish faith. Timothy was very, very acquainted with the Old Testament because his mom and grandmother had done an extremely good job raising him. By the way, the name Timothy means honored of God. So that was the first meeting. On the second missionary journey Paul took to Galatia about three years later, about 49 AD, he actually made Timothy a part of his ministry team. He said, this young man has got a very good reputation in a local church, and I want to mentor him, if you will, and make him my protege. So he really began to take Timothy under his wing and mentor him. Actually, Paul and Timothy had probably one of the closest relationships in the New Testament. Paul refers to Timothy often as my true child in the faith. So they had a very close spiritual relationship. Timothy's probably 22, 23 at this point in time, and he becomes Paul's most trusted associate. He refers to Timothy in many of his letters. So when you, Paul wrote 14 letters, 
uh, and epistles, and, and six of them he mentions Timothy by name. So Paul is released from prison about 62, 63 AD. They revisit some of the churches in Asia, and Paul leaves Timothy at the church in Ephesus because the church in Ephesus has some serious, significant troubles. This letter was written to Timothy probably a year or so after he took over the pastorship of this church. And he writes him this letter to encourage him to continue in the ministry at Ephesus. Timothy, as near as we can tell, is somewhat passive, maybe a little timid. Sounds like he's got some physical troubles, maybe stomach problems. Uh, Paul writes an encouraging letter to him saying, you're a soldier in active service. This is a battle. Don't wimp out, right? You stay in the battle, stay in the course. Uh, it's a spiritual battle. And he tells Timothy, fight the good fate of faith. So Timothy, by nature, is probably a little retiring, a little passive, a little timid. And Paul is putting some nitroglycerin in his veins and says, you have to stay the course. Church tradition tells us that Timothy pastored that church for about 30 years. He's actually martyred in AD 97. Uh, they, the statue of Diana, which of course was the goddess in that community, was being paraded through the streets, and Timothy was preaching against that, and they killed him in the streets in AD 97. So Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus. Ephesus at that point in time was not an easy city to operate in. The city of Ephesus was a very, very important city uh, within the Roman Empire. It was the third largest. Rome had about a million citizens. Alexandria, Egypt, probably a half million. And, and Ephesus, about 175,000 people. Very, very large city. It was a port city on the Aegean Sea. Uh, so it was a very, very uh, 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 trade-heavy uh, city at that point in time. And they worshipped the goddess Diana. Now, that's the Roman name for that. The Greek name is Artemis. <clears throat> um, and she was the goddess of sex, sexual desire. So port cities already have problems with sexual immorality when, you're, when your patron saint or your patron goddess is the goddess of sex. You can only imagine the debauchery that occurred in this particular city. It had a very, very thriving sex trade. Paul had actually spent three years in Ephesus before. It's the longest place he spent in any ministry uh, at that point in time. And as you recall from the book of Acts, he was preaching and many people were coming to faith and a local silversmith named Demetrius in Acts really took exception to Paul's teaching and created a riot uh, against him at that point in time. And here's the reason why. Demetrius was a silversmith and their whole business was making these little silver statues of Artemis which was the goddess, right, Diana of the city. And these statues were very sexualized statues. They were idols, but people would buy them and worship this idol in their home. And they made a very good living manufacturing these idols and selling them. So Paul comes along and says, this is a false god. There is one true God. You can know him through Jesus Christ. People were coming to faith. And it began to hurt business. And so Demetrius said, this character is starting to cost us some serious money. And so he organized uh, an entire, uh, actually turned into a city riot, if you will, uh, against Paul because uh, it was hurting their bottom line business at that point in time. So Paul, after he left Ephesus, 
had told the leaders of that church, you are going to have troubles. There are going to be people from your own congregation who are going to preach false teaching and lead people astray from your own congregation. And that prediction was now coming true. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle, of course, is someone who is personally commissioned by somebody else and sent on a mission. So an apostle is someone who's under the authority of the one who sent them and carrying the message for the one who sent them. So it's not their message, and they're not operating under their own authority. It's God's message, and they're operating under the, in this case, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I didn't volunteer for this job. I was called and commanded by God to take this position as an apostle. And Paul, as you know, had ordained Timothy in the ministry, and their relationship was very, very close. So Timothy really was the only one who had Paul's spiritual DNA. He was fully committed to the same things Paul was, and so Paul could entrust him with his very, very difficult ministry. It's interesting, if you want to pass on your spiritual DNA to someone else, like your children or your grandchildren, there really is no other way to do it other than extended time with them. Jesus spent three and a half years with his disciples. Pretty much every waking hour of every day for three years. So Jesus' DNA actually was caught by the disciples as much as it was taught. And Jesus was the master teacher. So if you want to pass on your spiritual DNA to your kids, grandkids, family, and friends, you need to spend time with them. There really is no other way to do it at a distance. And when they see you living according to the truth you speak, it will have a, a powerful impact on them. Verse 3, Paul's now writing to Timothy. As I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Here's the principle. I'm going to repeat them now three times since you don't have a visual cue. First principle. The primary purpose of every pastor is to faithfully teach God's word. The primary purpose of every pastor is to faithfully teach God's word. One more time. The primary purpose of every pastor is to faithfully teach God's word. So Paul left Timothy at Ephesus because there was a rather urgent need there. There were members of the congregation within the congregation that were teaching false doctrine. They were probably the Judaizers. Those were a group of Jewish people, not saved, and they taught that salvation was not by grace, it was by works. They were zealots, for sure, but they were not following the gospel. They were following fables, genealogies, myths, and things, human issues at that point in time. 
Instead of explaining God's word so people could understand it and follow it, they were trying to find hidden meanings in biblical codes and words and lists of names in the Old Testament, things like that. And we really don't know what these speculations were, but we do know that Paul was very opposed to it because it did not further the gospel. It created divisions. You know, anytime you take your eyes off Jesus, you wind up in trouble. And no matter what else you're studying, if you take your eyes off Jesus, you open yourself up to being led astray. And these false teachers inside the church were leading members of the congregation away from their liberty in Christ, their liberty from grace, into the slavery of legalism. And legalism simply says, if you just follow this list of do's and don'ts, God will be happy. That's not true. That is not true. Number one, those lists are man-made, not God's lists. And number two, favor with God, your relationship with God, ultimately does not depend on what you do or what you don't do. It depends on what Jesus Christ completed for us on the cross of Calvary. You know, as a Christian today, it is so easily, it's so easy to get distracted from the gospel, even by really good things, right? I mean, there's so many pressing needs in the world. You've got hunger and human trafficking and broken families and homelessness and wars and social justice and political. I mean, you could just, the laundry list could go on and on and on. And by the way, they're all legitimate needs. And we're simply not saying you shouldn't be involved in those, but they're never a replacement for the gospel. Because if you fix all those problems, you have only helped people in this life only. And when they die, then what? They spend eternity apart from Christ. Well, that is the primary problem, the separation from Jesus Christ. So the point here is, there's nothing wrong with being involved in meeting human needs, but the solution for those human needs ultimately is the gospel of Jesus Christ because changed people change people. Paul's point here is real simple. Keep the main thing the main thing. What's the very first line of Alcoholics Anonymous 12 points? First things first, right? First things first. Keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? The gospel. Paul says, keep the gospel first. Keep the gospel first. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's the principle. The brand mark of the believer is love. Following Jesus means loving like Jesus loved. The brand mark of the believer is love. Following Jesus means loving like Jesus loves. One more time. The brand mark of the believer is love. Following Jesus means loving like Jesus loved. Yeah, the whole point of learning the Bible is not to increase your spiritual knowledge or your spiritual literacy. It's learning to love like Jesus loves. And that Paul's talking about the kind of love that's not human love, it's transcendent, it goes beyond that. And it actually comes from three sources. So, you know, I want you to think of a river that has three tributaries. 
three inputs, three sources of this river of love. Paul says, love comes, first of all, from a pure heart. And pure, of course, means unmixed, undiluted, the genuine thing. Uh, many of you are wearing gold rings, <clears throat> right? I have news for you. None of those are pure gold. Not one of them. Because pure gold is 24 karat and is way too soft. It will bend, it will get misshapen. Most foreign folks, non-American, I shouldn't say foreign, but most, most gold in foreign countries is 18 karat. Most American gold is 14 karat. So it's got other metals in it to keep it stronger, but it's not pure. Sorry, ladies, doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's just that it's not pure gold. So pure gold is 100% gold and nothing else. It's not diluted, it's not alloyed, etc., etc. Most of us like to drink pure water. Pure water is water that is nothing else but water, right? All the impurities have been uh, cleansed from it or filtered out of it. And a pure heart is a heart that has been cleansed from sin. Sins have been confessed and repented of and forgiven. A pure heart is filled with only one thing. Love for God. God's love is presented in the Bible. What does Matthew 5, 8? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Which means that purity, it doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ's righteousness given to us and our sins being forgiven and cleansed. Well, how do you get cleansed? What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forget about our sins. Is there a difference? Yes. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's God's part. We have a part, too, in purifying our own hearts. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things that are sins, that, that means sins that dishonor God, if anyone cleanses himself, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21. So God's part is to forgive. Our part is to confess and we have to take the active role in confessing that sin to God and then turning away from it and turning to God. That's the whole point of repentance. So an impure heart is a heart that is cluttered up with the stuff of this world, not the love of Jesus Christ. It's ego and pride and selfishness and coveting. It's an impure heart. And we all have those because we're sinners. But Jesus Christ came to cleanse us from all sin and give us a heart that's filled with God's love. That's number one. Love comes from a pure heart. Number two, love also comes from a good conscience. Now, conscience literally means to know with. Our conscience is kind of the inner judge that either affirms us when we do right or accuses us when we do wrong. Does your conscience ever talk with you, anybody? That, does it talk to you about two in the morning sometimes? Yeah, okay. I thought that was your bladder. I'm sorry. <laughs> sometimes my bladder wakes me up and then the Lord works on my conscience. I mean, the Lord works in mysterious ways, right? I mean, that's one of the ways he works. 
Conscience is the one of the ways that God guides you, but your conscience is only reliable if it's been informed by God's word. And the way you inform your conscience with God's word is to immerse it in the word of God. Literally bathe your mind and your heart in the word of God. Our conscience is one of our moral guidance mechanisms. It's kind of like a spiritual GPS, if you will. But it has to be trained by truth. Otherwise, it will be corrupted by compromise. How many of you read the newspaper and you look at people and you say, they have no conscience. How could they do that? Well, their conscience has been corrupted. It has not been informed by the word of God. It has not been purified by the word of God. It has not been immersed in the word of God. And so therefore it's been corrupted. One of the quickest ways to corrupt your conscience is it's called to sin against your conscience means to do what you know is wrong. When you deliberately choose to sin against what you know is right, you are corrupting your conscience. Scripture says that that is searing your conscience. It's like taking the iron you iron clothes with and just putting it on your hand for five seconds. You will sear your flesh. And when you sear your flesh, you kill all the nerving endings in it. So ultimately, when it heals, it can't feel anything, right? Some of you may have numb spots on your body where you can't feel stuff. Well, that's when you sear flesh, you kill the nerve ending so it can't feel anything. When you sin against your conscience, when you do what you know is wrong, you're putting a hot iron on your conscience and you're killing the nerve endings in it. So now it's not reliable in terms of telling you what's right or wrong. That's why when you look at some people and you say, how could they do that? It's real simple. They've seared their conscience at the point in time, doesn't bother them at all. They can't feel anything. It's been abused for, in some cases, their whole life at that point. So the best way to have a clean conscience, number one, confessing sin is a very good way to have a clear conscience. Immerse your heart and your mind in God's word. And when your conscience bothers you, talk to God about it. Right? That can be a prompt from the Holy Spirit to confess sin. The longer we live with sin, the more comfortable we come with it. That is lethal. That's like saying, I can live with this cancer, and cancer and I will just get along fine. Uh, no, cancer wants you dead. Sin wants you dead. It's war. So we know that love comes from a pure heart. If love is the whole point, the whole point of knowing the Bible, the whole point of knowing the Lord, following Jesus means loving like Jesus loved. Love comes from a pure heart. Love comes from a good conscience. Lastly, love comes from a sincere faith. Not a hypocritical faith, not a faith of pretense, but a genuine sincere faith. The word sincere, the Latin is sincere. S-I-N-C-E-R-E, sincere. And it literally means without wax, without wax. And it came because Romans were sculptors. And the Roman sculptor would sculpt in marble. Marble is a reasonably soft stone. You don't see any sculpting in granite most of the time. It's very tough. But marble is a bit of a soft stone. And they would sculpt this sculpture. And sometimes there would be cracks in the sculpture, right? I mean, there would be fissures. So what the unscrupulous sculptors would do is pack those with wax. They would pack that with the same colored wax as the stone and smooth it all off. 
And if it wasn't Bakersfield heat, it wouldn't melt, right? So you could fool people. You get into that at Bakersfield, you put it on a summer day and there'd be melting wax, right? But back then they would do that. And unscrupulous people would do that and unsuspecting buyers would buy this thing and they would be buying a faulty, fissured, cracked sculpture, but there was wax in it. So your ethical merchants would place a sign on the sculpture that says, Sincere, without wax. We didn't use any wax in this product. So that was a brand mark. It was a mark of genuineness. It was a mark of what you see is what you get. There's no deception. There's no fraud. There's no hypocrisy. And a hypocrite, of course, at that point was an actor in a play. They literally had Greek dramas at that point, and hypocrite was an actor. And they didn't have a lot of actors, so what they do is they would let the actors wear various masks, like the masquerade balls where you had a, a face, and you'd put the face up, you wear the mask, and you'd play the role. So a hypocrite wore masks that concealed who they really were while they were playing a role on stage that might be something different than what they really were. In today's culture, when we call somebody a hypocrite, what are we saying? What does that mean? Pardon? A liar. What else? Phony. Two-faced. That's pretty good. Two-faced, yeah. Right? It means someone who is pretending to be somebody they're not. They're presenting themselves in one light, but they're really not. Hypocrisy is always deception, right? On the other hand, sincerity is always a statement of truthfulness. When you sign your name, I know nobody writes letters anymore, but you might do email, right? Some of you do email occasionally. I mean, some of you tweet. I don't know if you ever have said sincerely yours at the bottom of a letter, right, that you're writing. What you're saying is everything above this line that I've written is truthful. It's genuine. There's no wax in it. I'm not deceiving you. It's honest. It's truthful. So Paul says a sincere faith is a genuine faith. It's a faith without hypocrisy. It's a faith without deception. Because what we know is a sincere faith will stand the test of time. A fake faith will crumble. Paul says if you're going to have the love of Jesus, you will have right a sincere faith. That's one of the feeders into that at that point. So a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith will produce love. And love is the whole point of the Christian life. Knowing Jesus, knowing the source of love. And it's a selfless love. And ultimately, God's love is always selfless because he gave himself for us. It's expressed through Jesus Christ. And the command is we are to love others in the same way that God loved us. Selflessly. So the primary brand mark of the believer is love. Jesus said in John 13, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you tolerate each other. Not really. It says if you love one another with my love, because right after that he said, Greater love has no one than this than if one lays down their life for their friends. See, one of the things is selfish love is really lust, and that's pretty normal. You look around our culture, do you see selfishness? Yeah, it's kind of epidemic. Selfless love is supernatural. 
No one does it without divine help. And that's why it's such a powerful testimony. When you love like Jesus loves, it is proof that Jesus lives in you. Because you can't do it without his help. None of us can love like Jesus loves without the power of God in us. Verse 6. For some men straying away from these things have turned away to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even they do not understand what they are saying or the matter about which they make confident assertions. Do you know anybody like that? Always like Denny's, always open, 24-7, always open, right? And yet what comes out of their mouth, you go, dumb and dumber, right? Here's the principle. Rejecting biblical truth makes you mentally foolish and spiritually fruitless. Rejecting biblical truth makes you mentally foolish and spiritually fruitless. One more time. Rejecting biblical truth makes you mentally foolish and spiritually fruitless. So not everybody in this Ephesian church shared Paul's belief and his focus on the whole point was loving like Jesus loved. Some of these teachers, these false teachers in this church in Ephesus, were motivated by ego and pride and selfishness and exaltation. I mean, they had missed God's target. They turned away from the truth and they'd given themselves over to worthless and meaningless talk and it was all about them. It was all about them and their life was not producing any spiritual fruit. You know, a, a physically useful plant produces fruit. How many of you have fruit trees in your yard? Any? Are you getting any fruit this time of year? Okay, some, you see some green stuff coming on, etc., etc. Uh, we have some of that. Uh, a spiritually useful life produces spiritual fruit, just like a physically useful plant produces physical fruit. Now, I have a dwarf peach tree in my backyard. Hasn't produced any fruit in two years. What do you think I'm going to do with that tree? It's already dead or Elvis. Now it's going to be on the fire, right? The whole point is, maybe I should ask a question. Ever had a conversation with someone and walked away and said, there's not one useful thing that came out of that. <coughs> Ever had that conversation with yourself? How many of you talk with yourself? Oh, of course we do. How many of you answer back? Of course we do. No, that's life. We do. We have these conversations. Many times those conversations are not very productive. Just saying. Our conversations with other people can be equally fruitless and they don't produce anything productive. Here's the point. Spiritual conversation that doesn't encourage people to be more like Jesus is worthless. That's the whole point. To encourage each other to love like Jesus loves. Paul says these teachers, they're engaged in fruitless discussions. They want to be teachers. They want to be large and in charge. They want to be in front of everybody. And they are fools because they've rejected the truth of Scripture. They want to be central. They don't want to give Jesus Christ 
the central point. They want the respect and applause of people. They want to be exalted. They don't want Jesus to be exalted. And they were like the Pharisees uh, in Jesus' day. Paul says they don't even understand the law themselves, let alone be competent to teach it. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9. Realizing the fact that the law was not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which with I have been entrusted. So these false teachers had a, had a wrong view of the law. First of all, they said, you can be saved if you keep the law. And Paul says, wrong, 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 wrong. Let's talk about the purpose of the law. And here's the principle. This is going to be long, so I'm going to repeat it slowly. God's law diagnoses our problem. God's law diagnoses our problem. Everyone has sinned and is separated from God. God's law diagnoses our problem. What's the problem? Everyone has sinned and is separated from God. That's the function of the law. The law is not designed to save us. The law is designed to diagnose us. So the purpose of the law is to diagnose our problem, and the problem is everyone has sinned and is separated from God. Second part of this principle. The gospel provides the solution to the problem. The gospel provides the solution to the problem. Christ paid the penalty for our sin so we can have a relationship with God. The God's law diagnoses our problem. Everyone is sin and is separated from God. The gospel provides a solution to the problem. Christ paid the penalty for our sin so we can have a relationship with God. Here's the point. The law and the gospel go together. You have to have both. Here's why. The law without the gospel... Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That is diagnosis without cure. Diagnosis without cure. The gospel without the law is cure for people who refuse it because they don't believe they have a problem that requires God's solution. So you read the Ten Commandments and you go, da 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 Wow. Have I broken those? Uh-huh. So that's a diagnostic issue. I have a problem. I've broken the law and I'm separated from God. Is there any solution in the law? No one can keep it. So it's not a solution. It's a diagnosis. It reveals the problem. The, gospel, the law is never the means of salvation because no one ever got right with God by keeping the law because no one can keep it except Jesus Christ. The law is the method God uses to reveal our need for a Savior by exposing our sin. So the law is like, a, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, an X-ray, a CT scan, right, where they actually look inside you and find things that you really didn't want to see, right? That's, the whole, that's what the law does. The law is the floodlight, the moral floodlight that God turns on and says, let me show you the problem. And you say, well, why would that be important? 
Well, if you don't know have a problem, are you going to be interested in a solution? Probably not. You go, I don't have a problem. So when you share Christ with people and they're convinced that they have not sinned, why do they need a Savior? The law was given to us to diagnose the problem. The law is kind of a window that allows us to look into God's perfect standard and is kind of a mirror that reflects back on us and shows us we haven't kept up to that law because you cannot fix a problem you do not know you have. So people respond to that spiritual diagnosis in one of two ways. They either trust Christ to pay for their sins or they trust in themselves because they think they do good enough. Most people in the world believe that their standard of righteousness is good enough for God to give them a passing grade, right? I mean, God grades on a curve, right? Doesn't he? And 70% is passing or 60% or 50%, whatever. What's the passing grade on God's exam? 100%. It is not a curve. It is either pass or it's fail. And if it's not 100%, it's failure. And God said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's what the world we live in. The world we live in overrates their own righteousness. How many of you talk to people that said, I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anybody. I mean, not recently. Right? I mean, I'm, of course, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murder. And many people are angry. If you look at someone with lust, it's the same as adultery. Of course, that's a standard, a thought life standard that none of us can meet. Many people think that God is like them. And God sees them like they see themselves. How many of you know people that are very good at excusing their own sins? I mean, I didn't mean, I, I mean, you know... I mean, I give myself lots of mercy. So God will give me mercy because I'm good enough. God says, no, the law says you're not good enough. But there is a solution to that problem. The law reveals that no one can meet God's standard, but the gospel is the remedy for that solution because Jesus Christ did live up to God's standard for us. And he paid the penalty for us on our behalf. And Paul says... Don't, these teachers were teaching, if you just keep the law, you'll be saved. Paul says, no, the function of the law was not to save you, it was to diagnose your problem. And we have a culture today that really needs to understand their sin before they will be open to salvation. And I think sometimes we talk about all the benefits of knowing Jesus, but we don't necessarily say, he came because you're a sinner. And until they accept that, the concept of needing a Savior is irrelevant to them. And Paul says, when you come to faith in Christ, you're no longer a slave to the law because the law has no power over you at that point. You are now a slave to Christ. You're also adopted into his family. You're a family member of Christ. So if you believe the law is what's going to save you, you'll keep the law because you're afraid of God. Once you become adopted into his family, you want to please him because he's your father. And you love him. Your motivation changes to one of gratitude. And of course, the power to do that comes from the Holy Spirit. So then Paul gives a whole list. He says, by the way, those of you who think you don't sin, he says, there's lawless and rebels. Those are people that refuse to recognize the law and refuse to obey them. Do you know anybody that has problems recognizing the law? 
You know anybody that says they're, thinks they're above the law? Right? They, they live back then as well. Ungodly and sinful, people that have no regard for God, sinners that live in opposition to God. Paul says there's the unholy and profane. There are people that live impure lives and they treat holy things as common. Pastor Roger talked about that this morning. People that talk about God like he's the man upstairs. Or they talk about Jesus Christ like J.C. Right? Those are, that is treating what is holy as casual. That's a sin. It's a view of God that is not in alignment with who he really is. And of course, Paul gives another list of sins people commit against each other. Killing father or mother, of course, that's the do not murder, honor your father and mother. Adulterers and homosexuals, they violate the second, seventh commandment. Kidnapping violates the eighth commandment, do not steal. Liars and perjurers, they're violating the ninth commandment. So he gives you a laundry list, says, by the way, those of you who think you're okay, here's a list. And, and, and the law makes us uncomfortable because it reveals our inadequacy. And that was the whole point. Our inadequacy is God's opportunity to demonstrate his love for us. Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which was found in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Jesus not only saves us from sin and death, he calls us to work with him as he saves others. Jesus not only saves us from sin and death, he calls us to work with him as he saves others. So Paul is extraordinarily grateful that God put him into service. As a matter of fact, when you read Paul's letters, he can never get over the fact that God put him into service despite his wicked past. He had been a sworn enemy of Jesus Christ. He had imprisoned God's people. He had voted to murder God's people. He tried to tear down everything that Jesus came to build up because he believed he was doing God's work. And he says, Jesus Christ showed me Mercy, because I acted in ignorance, not in willful disobedience. Now, when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw the light literally, repented of his past, and began to follow Jesus. Paul says, I'm a trophy of God's grace. I'm an example of how bad you can be, and God can still use you. I'm an example of how God can make a missionary out of a murderer. So if God can use me who is his violent enemy, he certainly can use you and you and you and you and you, right? There is no limitation on the mercy of God or the capacity of God. And once Paul got saved, what? God put him to work. God put him into service, right? He says, whatever I needed in order to accomplish what God called me to do, God gave me. God's grace in my life was not just abundant, it was super abundant. I think this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road. Almost everybody in this room is probably already saved. And many, 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 many of you in this room are serving, which is what you're called to do. I talked to someone the other day, and they made a laundry list, they're retired, of the ministries they're involved in. 
and there's probably about nine. And I said, I know you're probably busy 10, 11 hours a day. I said, yeah. And I said, have you really thought about, at the end of the day, what the priorities are? In other words, you're busy doing good stuff. But are you so busy you're not doing any of it really well? You're reacting as opposed to saying, this is the primary thing God has called me to do. Some of you are involved in ministry that you don't think is ministry. You're caring for elderly people, caring for grandchildren. That's ministry. If that's your calling, then do it and do it faithfully. God will supply whatever we need to fulfill whatever he has called us. And that's so important because when you look at the needs in the world, and John is going to bring these up in a couple minutes, just the needs in our class, the health issues, the job issues, the relational issues. Sometimes you look at that list and you go, God, is everybody just falling apart? I mean, is that what's happening? Our lives are just continually seems to be under attack, etc. Paul says the grace of God is super abundant for whatever you need. So as Pastor talked about this morning, and we'll talk about next week, our calling primarily is to pray and watch God do what only he can do. Verse 15, the trustworthy statement full of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might be demonstrated as his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Here's the last principle. The only reason Christ came to earth was to save sinners especially me, especially me. The only reason Christ came to earth was to save sinners, especially me. Here's the point. He would have come just for you. If you were the only one, what's the parable? There were 90 and 900 sheep. Only one was lost. And the good shepherd did what? Left the fold and went after the one. So you might have a relative or a friend or a family member that is not know Jesus. And they're lost. We have a shepherd who goes after them. Goes after them. Sometimes that means allowing them to experience hardship and trouble and pain. That's called waking you up. That your current course of action is probably not a wise one. And some of us as parents and grandparents, we want to help Sometimes you should get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit let them suffer until they realize the foolishness of their existing course of action. Now this little verse here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Martin Luther called it the Bible in miniature. It summarizes the gospel in one verse. Jesus Christ came to earth for only one reason, to save sinners. He left spotless heaven, came down to sinful earth to salvage us, Sinners who were ruined. You know, sin has killed us. Sin threw us on the junkyard of life where we were abandoned to rust and rot. And Jesus came to earth to what? Pull us out of the junkyard. How many have been in the junkyard? Have you ever? I used to salvage stuff out of junkyards. I was so poor. That's where I got my car parts from. Right When I was a teenager and stuff, you went to junkyards, you got parts. Well, there's a lot of rusting and rotting going on in there. That's humans without Jesus Christ. They're in the junkyard. They're rusting and rotting, falling apart. 
They think they're going on the freeway of life. They're in the junkyard. Jesus Christ came to pull us out of the junkyard and restore us to useful service. And Paul said, I'm the foremost sinner of all. And he said this right near the end of his life after he'd been faithfully following Jesus and suffering for Christ for decades. He never forgot that he, the foremost enemy of Christ, had been saved and was now privileged to be a servant. Let me give you a last word picture. I want you to think of sin like an onion. Sin is like an onion. As you grow closer to Jesus, he keeps peeling layers away. How many of you have ever peeled an onion? And you're saying, is this thing ever going to end? Right? You're crying because it's all, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're going, how many layers in this onion? Especially you get a big, you know, big purple like you put on your BLTs on summer days, right? It just keeps going. As you grow closer to Jesus, he keeps peeling the layers of sin away and throwing them away. Our point is, is we have to let him do it. We have to keep surrendering that onion and saying, Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to grow closer to you. And in order for that to take place, I'm willing to let you peel this away and get rid of it in my life. That's a painful process, but it's an essential process. And that is the way that Paul went from an enemy of Christ, not just by saved, that was through Jesus Christ alone, but Jesus Christ kept working in Paul's life. Decade after decade after decade. And that's what he wants to do with us. Okay, let me summarize now. I'll ask John to come up and lead us in prayer and praise. The primary purpose of every pastor is to faithfully teach God's word. Number two, the brand mark of the believer is love. You've all been branded with Jesus Christ. You carry his name and the brand mark you carry is love. Following Jesus means loving like Jesus loved. If you say you follow Jesus, you're called to love like he loved, which is selflessly. Number three, rejecting biblical truth makes you mentally foolish and spiritually fruitless. We just call it sin makes you stupid. That's just simple. Sin makes you stupid. God's law diagnoses our problem. Everyone has sinned and is separated from God. The gospel provides the solution. Christ paid the penalty for our sins so we can have a relationship with God. Jesus not only saves us from sin and death, he calls us to work with him. If you're not busy working with him, get off the bench. He wants to use you to save others. And lastly, the only reason Christ came to earth was to save sinners, especially me. John, can you come up and lead us in prayer and praise? I love you all. Now that you know, do. It is wonderful to see you again. Next week, we'll pick up 1 Timothy 2, and it will be interesting. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.